Well, good morning, everyone. So let me ask you this. When was the last time that you met someone for the first time or you saw somebody for the first time in a while and you asked them how they were doing? And they said, you know what? I'm doing great. I've gotten eight hours of sleep every night for the last month. Work is great. My boss loves me. I never feel like I have too much on my plate. And my kids always sleep in until 9 a.m. on Saturday. And they have coffee and pancakes waiting for me. No? Okay. I didn't think so. That's, that's not my life either. Um, we are all very, very, very busy. I don't think anyone would say, I've just got so much free time on my hands. I, I don't know what to do with it. I'm, I'm just too relaxed. I was doing some research this week, and it was kind of hard to piece it all together, uh, but it seems that on average, Americans work about 40 or 45 hours a week, which that would rank about 15th to 20th as a country worldwide. And here in Parker, we live in Douglas County, and for the last few years, Douglas County has cracked the top 10 in wealthiest counties in America. And so just because it costs so much to live here, you have to work more in order to make more money just so you can live here. So I think it would be safe to say that on average, us here in this room in Douglas County work probably about 50 hours a week. And we're in the suburbs, and the reason that you live in the suburbs is because of all the great opportunities that it has for your family, you know, some of the best schools, the the best sports, just a a ton of great opportunities. And so on top of working 50 hours a week, we, we are just trying to provide the best for our family. And so what happens is day after day and night after night, we are always going, 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 always on the move. And I'm, I'm not against working hard. I'm not against looking to provide the best for your family. I, I think we should try to do those things. But just looking at how exhausted I think a lot of us are, I think it's safe to say that perhaps maybe our view of work and rest might be a little bit warped. And so this week we are going to be continuing our spiritual discipline series, our principle of the path series, and we are going to be looking at Sabbath. And just what it means to, to stop, to slow down, and, and to just take a break and learn how to work and rest in the rhythms and the patterns that God has uh, designed us to be in. So just as as a bit of an outline for how we're going to spend our time, for about the first 10 minutes, we're going to just do a a very broad, sweeping overview of the Bible to see where was the Sabbath uh, inaugurated, when did God begin it, why did he begin it, uh, see kind of how it develops through the Old Testament, and then how does the New Testament uh, view the Sabbath, and you know, does it apply today, if it does, or if it doesn't, just how are, what are some things that we can incorporate, um, so just for, for that first part, for that broad overview, it's going to be about 10 minutes, and um, you know the Lord tells us to love Him with all of our heart, soul, and mind, so it's going to be a little heavy, so just stick with me, track with me. It's a necessary foundation um, that we have to lay. So that's how we'll spend our time. Um, so before we do that, let me pray that the Lord would bless our time in His Word. Lord, we love You, and we praise You for opportunity that it is to gather as your people, to worship you, to sing to you, to pray to you, um, to study your revelation to us in your word. We ask that by your spirit that you would guide our hearts and our minds, that we would see Jesus, and that by beholding him that we would become like him and be transformed more into his image. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So where does Sabbath first show up in the Bible? The, the, the first time that we see that word Shabbat, that Hebrew word just means cease or rest, is in the very, very beginning. You see it all the way back in Genesis 1 and 2 in the creation account. And so God, for, for six days, he was speaking out of nothing everything. He was speaking it into existence. And for six days, he was speaking and shaping and forming and filling. And then we get to the seventh day. And in Genesis 2, we read that God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, God rested from all of his work that he had done in creation. Now, now when I read that God rested, that, that sounds a little strange to me. You know, isn't God almighty? Isn't he all-powerful? Doesn't Isaiah 40, that, doesn't it say that God does not faint or, or grow weary? So, so when, when God rested, what, what does that mean? Well, if you look closely and read the whole verse, it says that God rested from all of his work that he had done in creation. So for the first six days, God was speaking and forming and shaping and filling. And then on that seventh day, he ceased, he rested from creating. So he was still upholding that creation by the word of his power. He was still, still sus- sustaining and preserving that creation. He was just resting from actually creating. And that Sabbath rest was never meant to end. If you go through the first six days, each day is marked off by a line that says, and there was evening and there was morning the first day, and, and there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. But when you get to that seventh day, there, there is nothing to mark it off. And so I think that means that God intended for that Sabbath to continue forever. So, so think about it. On the sixth day, God created Adam and Eve, and they were in paradise in the garden. They didn't have to be scared of the animals. They uh, didn't have any shame or guilt before each other. There was perfect relationship and intimacy between them. Their relationship with God, their union, their communion with Him was perfect. And so on their first full day, on the seventh day, they were told to rest. It was an unending Sabbath. And then you get to Genesis 3, and everything comes crashing down. They eat of the fruit, and a curse falls over them and over all of creation. So they've been told to be fruitful and multiply. That was their, their command. And Eve is now told that her childbearing will be full of pain. So, you know, her what was meant to be just a joy and a privilege and a blessing, while it still is, now just is full of pain. Adam, he had been told to name the animals and to work the garden and to cultivate it. And we see that the way the curse affected him most is it frustrated his work. Now, only the ground, it would give him thorns and thistles, and he was going to have to sweat. He was going to get less of a return on his work investment. He was going to be frustrated. And and they were kicked out of the garden. Their relationship with one another had been broken. Their relationship with God had been broken. So they were kicked out of the garden, and that Sabbath was over. I finished reading Genesis in my Bible reading plan this week, and the contrast between chapters 1 and 2 and the rest of the book are are just startling. In in 1 and 2, you have this perfect union and unending Sabbath, and then after the fall, there's 
murder and rape and betrayal and lying. I mean, some of the stories in Genesis are just wild. And I think in reading the rest of Genesis and comparing it with the beginning, we are meant to see like we are not in Kansas anymore. This Sabbath is over. So you keep reading the story. You finish Genesis and you go to Exodus. And God delivers his people out of slavery in Egypt. And he brings them to Mount Sinai. And so in Exodus chapter 20, God is giving the Ten Commandments. He's saying, you're going to be a people. We need some rules. Here's how you're going to live. And with the fourth commandment, he said, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And here, why he said this is the fourth commandment. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. So God grounded, he rooted, he, uh, the foundation for this Sabbath goes back to the creation account. And so just kind of keep that in the back of your mind. Uh, that's going to be something we need to remember just as we remember this pattern, this rhythm that God has set, this pattern of work and rest. But, but when it comes to asking, you know, what exactly was Israel allowed to do or what exactly were they not allowed to do, that, that becomes a, a much harder question to answer. We, we do know that they were allowed to offer sacrifices. They could have marriage and dedication feasts. They could, there were a few times they went on military campaigns on the Sabbath. So they, they could do some of those things, but uh, they couldn't gather food. They couldn't sell goods. They couldn't bear burdens. Um, and so it's just, it's kind of really hard to pin down what exactly it was they were and were not allowed to do. So I I don't think it's possible to make a completely exhaustive list. I think maybe the safest way to say it would be that Israel is meant to follow the spirit of the law, if not the letter of it. That the Sabbath was meant to be a day of honoring and worshiping the Lord and remembering what God had done in delivering them from Egypt. So if if an outsider, if someone from another nation were to look at Israel on the Sabbath, they would be able to tell this is not a normal nine to five. This is not a day for getting ahead or making deals. This is a day of stepping back and resting in what the Lord has done. That's that's where we are in redemptive history and Exodus. That is what God intended the Sabbath to be at that point. So then you get to the New Testament, and, and there appears to be a shift. So we're in Hebrews 4, Jen read Hebrews 4, 1 through 10 for us. And just to give a little bit of context, right before this in chapter 3, the author had been talking about the Exodus generation. And so God had delivered Israel out of bondage, out of slavery in Egypt. He had given them the Ten Commandments, and he said, if you're going to be a people, you have your rules, now you need a place to live. You need a land. So I'm going to give you the land of Canaan. This is going to be the promised land. This is where you're going to rest from the the burden and the slavery of Egypt. And so God brings them to the edge of Canaan, and Israel sends out 12 spies for a reconnaissance mission. And 10 of the spies come back, and they say, there's no way we can do this. They're, They're bigger, they're taller, they're stronger, there are more of them. There is no way that we can win this battle. And only two of the spies come back and say, 
God delivered us from slavery in Egypt. We walked through a sea on dry ground. Bread literally fell from heaven. God has said he will deliver us into this land. We need to trust and believe him. But Israel sided with the ten. And they said, we, we, we can't do it. We don't believe that God will deliver us. And so because of their unbelief, God did not allow Israel to enter into the promised land. And so instead, he made them wander in the desert for 40 years. That's just one by one, dropping like flies, that Exodus generation died off because of their unbelief. So that, that's how chapter 3 ends. So they were unable to enter because of their unbelief. And now as we move into chapter 4, the author's attention turns to rest. And here's how we see the Sabbath continue to develop throughout the Bible. Verse 3 says, For we who have believed enter that rest. Verses 8 through 11. For if Joshua had given them rest... God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us strive to enter that rest. So if you're anything like me, the first time you read that, maybe when Jen read that, just question marks everywhere. Doesn't make any sense. You know, you got... This guy talking about the Exodus generation, David's in there, he's quoting a psalm, talking about Joshua, somehow it's all related to rest. What, that's just not helpful at all, Hebrews. Well, what is happening for all of Hebrews, the entire book, all of Hebrews is looking back on the Old Testament, and it is interpreting it in light of Jesus and in light of what he has done. And so this author is looking back, and he is seeing where Israel failed. Because of their unbelief, because of their disobedience, they were not allowed to enter into the promised land, into the rest of God. And then he looks at Jesus, and he said, Jesus obeyed his father down to the letter. He never deviated. His faith was perfect. Where Israel failed, Jesus succeeded, and that changes everything. I think verses 9 and 10 put it really well. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did for him. So a Sabbath rest remains. It is available. It is possible to enter that rest because of what Christ has done. We were kicked out of the garden. Our Sabbath ended because of our disobedience. And through Christ, through his perfect obedience, through faith in him, our relationship with the Lord can be restored. We can enter into that fruitful, that restful relationship. God God made a promise back towards the very beginning in Genesis 3, right after Adam and Eve fell and, and a curse came over the world. He said, I will put enmity between you, speaking to the snake, between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So so the curse that has now fallen over creation, that curse is going to be reversed through this promised offspring. And so through Christ, through his life, death, and resurrection, he has undone all the effects of the curse. And we can now re-enter into that Sabbath rest with the Lord through faith in Him.
Okay, so class is over. That was the, the, the heady, big biblical theology sweeping part. So it, it's a necessary foundation, but now we can ask the big question that everybody always wants answered. Does the Sabbath still apply today? Do we still have to follow some of these restrictions? And it kind of depends on which question you're asking. If you're asking, is the Sabbath still at play in terms of, can I enter into the rest of the Lord? Can I have my relationship with Him restored and enter into that rest? Then absolutely, the Sabbath is still at play. If you are in Christ and you have already entered into your Sabbath rest. A few months ago, we were in the book of John. And in John 5, Jesus said, He who believes in me has already passed from death to life. So if you believe in Christ, then your eternal life, your eternal life with God has already begun before you died. It is right here, right now. I think similarly, if you are in Christ, then your Sabbath rest, your eternal rest with God has already begun in Him. It's not fully realized. We're not there yet, but it started. We're we're getting some of the first fruits, some of the appetizers of it. So in that sense, absolutely, the Sabbath is still at play. Or if what you mean by, is the Sabbath still at play, do I have to take one out of every seven days off? You know, do I have to follow some of these uh, strict restrictions that Israel did in the Old Testament? And I, I think the answer to that is you can, but you don't have to. It, it's an option, it's uh, possible, but it is not a requirement. And, and there are several New Testament texts that point to this. There's not one that makes the full argument, but I think when you piece them together, the picture is pretty clear. In Colossians 2, verse 16, Paul writes, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So basically all that's saying is it's saying exactly what Hebrews 4 said, but in a much simpler way. All of the Sabbath regulations, all of those restrictions, those were a shadow, a foreshadowing, a sign, a pointer pointing to Jesus, the one who will accomplish everything, who will fully restore us to the Lord, and our rest is in Him. So, so the metaphor breaks down pretty quick, but it's almost like uh, adhering to a Sabbath is like the appetizer, and being in Christ is the main meal. And so you are fully free to eat the the appetizer and then the main meal, or you can say, I want to save my appetite, and I'm going to skip the the appetizer, and I'm just going to feast on the main meal. You can go to Mark 2, 27, where Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so Sabbath was given to us as a gift. It was not meant to dominate over us or to rule over us. We weren't meant to serve the Sabbath. The Sabbath was meant to serve us in our relationship with the Lord. So it's, it's optional if you want it. I think Paul deals with it most thoroughly in Romans 14. He said, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. So one person... It seems one day better, wants to follow a Sabbath. One person esteems all days alike. That's fine. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. 
The one who observes the day observes in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. So so what Paul has in mind here, you may have heard this term before, is a weak-willed or a strong-willed believer. And a weak-willed believer would be someone who, just because of their temperament, their background, their relationship with the Lord, they can look at something, you know, maybe alcohol or music or keeping a Sabbath. And they would say, "I, I know myself, I know certain things about me and my tendencies and how I operate, and I don't want to tempt myself, and so I'm just going to put some some extra restrictions around me so that I don't fall into sin. So I'm, I'm not going to drink. I'm only going to listen to certain kinds of music, and I'm going to keep a Sabbath. And that is a perfectly legitimate option. Then you have a strong-willed believer who, again, because of their personality, their temperament, their relationship with the Lord, their upbringing, they can look at that exact same thing, alcohol, music, Sabbath, whatever you want, and say, it's, it's honestly a non-issue for me. I, I can engage in that, and my conscience is clear. I feel like I'm honoring the Lord whichever way that I go. So, so two believers can look at the same issue. They can have two completely different opinions, and both of those opinions can honor the Lord. And, and I, I think the Sabbath is one of these Christian liberty, open-handed issues. I think on one side you can say, I'm going to honor the Lord by setting aside one out of every seven days. I'm going to work hard for six days, and then I'm going to stop on the seventh day and say, everything isn't dependent on me. I'm not the center of the universe. God, I'm trusting that you will provide even though I'm taking this time off. And and if that's where you land, bless the Lord for that faith and that obedience. Or you can look at it and say, I don't feel the need to take one out of every seven days off. I am in Christ. He is my rest, and I rest best when I rest in Him. And if that's where you land, then bless the Lord for that faith and obedience. I think we just each have to be fully convinced in our own minds and in our own hearts and not pass judgment or despise each other because they come down on a different side of an open-handed issue. So, In light of all that, just examine your schedule. Where is all of your time going to? Are you having a healthy work and rest rhythm? Does your schedule show that you are honoring the Lord with your time and with your energy? So in light of your schedule, just examine your heart. Ask yourself if the way that you are living is honoring the Lord. Is it helping you or hurting you? Your, your pace, your schedule, your energy, is it helping you or hurting you in growing closer to the Lord? Then you just have to decide what's best for you and your family. So in terms of application, there are just a few things that I want to point out uh, that I think could be helpful things for us to pull back from, to, to take a Sabbath from. And, and it would be wrong for me to make these as a blanket statement that has to apply to everybody. I don't follow all of these. These are just suggestions. It would be wrong for me to bind somebody's conscience on an open-handed issue. But just looking at where we are and knowing our congregation and knowing where we struggle, I think these are some things that are just causing a lot of stress and anxiety and tension for ourselves, amongst one another, and in our relationship with the Lord. So if these are helpful, incorporate them. If not, cast them away. First thing I think we could cut back from would be technology. Thank you. Uh, 
one of my least favorite moments is every Sunday morning at 9 o'clock, I get a screen time report on my phone. Anybody else get that? Okay, yeah. I hate that moment. It is awful because I look and I see that I spend two hours and 18 minutes every single day. Last, last service I said every single week. So sorry if I made anybody feel bad that I only looked at my phone for two hours a week. I two hours and 18 minutes every single day this week looking at my phone. And, and the worst part is I went skiing for two days this week. So for eight to five, for two days a week, I didn't have my phone at all. And I still averaged well over two hours a week. A day. Did it again. <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I'm just, I'm addicted to NBA trash talk and dog gifts. I just, I, I can't help myself. I love it. And just, technology can be good, but I think what we have to realize is that your phone is a entire casino walking around in your pocket. It lights up, it buzzes, it dings, it just feels, you know, so good to hold the way the buttons work. All of it is designed to just give you a a quick dopamine hit every time something changes. And, and, And technology can be good. I'm not trying to bash that. I don't think we need to become monks or nuns in a monastery, but I do think we have to be wise with how we are using our phones and our technology. And so maybe consider just taking a technology Sabbath. Just one out of every seven days, just put the phone away. Get off social media, get off the news networks, get off the, the text threads with the cat and dog gifts that I love so much. Like the world will go on without you for a few hours once a week. I, I just think there comes a point in honoring and worshiping the Lord where you don't want to give the Lord a distracted heart. And our phones are meant to distract us. So it could just be helpful to to just take a step back and and honor the Lord by just being fully present with him and with your family. So that's one. The the second thing I think we could pull back from uh, would be the the youth, youth sports and youth activities and youth events that we are always going to. And, And I know we're in the suburbs and that I could get crucified for saying this, but as I look out at the under 18 crowd in the room, I don't see the next LeBron James or Serena Williams. So, sorry kids. Um, I, I, I just don't. But, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not judging. I, I was that kid. I, I did basketball year-round for years. And so for three, four, five nights a week and for weekends, it was completely devoted to sports. And I, it got to be my senior year, and I was a six foot six, 220 pound athlete, which, you know, I, I got it from the Lord and parents. I didn't do anything to it, but that's about as good as you can get. I had all of the training and all of the opportunities. And at the end of 12 years of basically doing sports as a full time job, I had one or two D2 offers. Just nothing. So your kid might get a scholarship to college, which is fine, but if they do, just count the costs. There, in the 18 years that you have with your kid, that is 6,570 days. 6,570 days to train up your child in the way that they should go. My, my college pastor, you guys have heard me talk about Chris Brooks. His family had a rule, once, one sport each year for each of their kids. And what that did is it taught their kids that 
the world doesn't revolve around them, and that while physical training is of some value, that what is much more valuable is godliness. And and so I'm not against year-round sports. I'm not against being gone a lot of the nights of the week. Um, I'm just saying count the cost, and if that is what you decide to do for your family, which I think is okay, just ask, how can I disciple my kids through this? How can I use this as a mission field? Just look at your schedule and then add a missions-minded lens to it so that you can honor the Lord in how you are spending your time. Third thing I think we can do is take a hike or take a nap. I think for, for some reason, just in, in Western culture and Western Christianity, we have this very split view of the spiritual and the physical. And so we think that the spiritual things are good and, and the physical things are bad. And, and we just we forget that we're embodied souls. We think we're just souls floating around without legs and arms. But we'll remember back to the creation account after God created everything in six days. He stepped back and he looked at all of that stuff, that physical material stuff that he made, and he said, that is very good. And so we, we just have to, to hold the spiritual and the physical in, in tandem. And so some of the best ways to take care of your soul is to take care of your body. We are embodied souls. So this is going to depend on how you spend your other six days of the week. But if you are sitting at a desk looking at a screen all week, then I think one of the best ways that you can rest, one of the best ways that you can Sabbath, is by going for a hike. Go play disc golf, go work in the yard, just go do something that gets your body moving. Or if you, know, you work outside all week, if you're bending down, if you're just putting forth a lot of physical effort and uh, toil on your body for six days, then on that seventh day, maybe consider just you and your couch have a two-hour window blocked off every single week. You're going to watch a movie, you're going to take a nap, you are going to say, God, I'm going to lay on my back and be unconscious for a few hours, and I trust that you've still got everything under control. I, I'm going to worship you by taking a nap. So we, we just have to take care of our bodies as a way of taking care of our souls and of honoring the Lord. And the fourth and the last one, um, I know I said that these aren't binding, and this still isn't binding, but I, I do want to emphasize it and stress it probably a little stronger than the other three. And another thing that I think we need to include each week would be just to gather as the body, to come together as the church. Hebrews 10, 25 says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. So so this isn't an unbreakable rule. You know, church attendance isn't a mandate. You're not this huge, big, ugly sinner if you're not at church every Sunday. But it is a a pretty strong expectation in the New Testament that we would gather together on a weekly basis. There's a a phrase that keeps popping up throughout the New Testament. The the first day of the week or the Lord's Day. And just throughout the New Testament, we see uh, Paul. he, He wrote to the Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians 16, he said, On the first day when you gather... You know, do these things so that when I come, we're, we're prepared for this meeting. So we didn't say, 
if you gather, or just, you know, if you happen to gather sporadically, he said, when you gather on the first day, it was an assumption, it was an expectation that he had that the believers were gathering together. We see the same thing in Acts 20. The, the believers in Ephesus, they gathered on the first day to share a meal and to learn the scriptures from Paul. And so while at the same time the New Testament uh, doesn't command and require you know, a full-blown Sabbath, it, it can say that while at the same time expect and assume that we will be gathering weekly to sing together, to pray together, to study God's word together, to eat a meal together. So it might not be commanded, but it is assumed. I just think if, if you love the Lord, but you don't love his people, you don't love to gather together to remember what God has done for you and to offer your praise and to learn more about God so that you can love God more, if, I, just, I don't see how you can say both of those things. I'm going to be honest, there, there are times where we just don't want to come to church. And, and i got to be honest, I feel that way too. And I'm, I'm a pastor. I honestly kind of felt that way this morning. I'm just staying in bed and going to podcast church sounded a lot better. Um, but I got here this morning, and I'm just out in the entryway, and Mark asked if he could pray for me. And just as he prayed that the Spirit would move and open my eyes and our eyes to see Jesus, that we would uh, exalt and who God is and what He has done, that we would do that together. There, there was just something in my soul that was stirred. And, and even though I didn't want to be here in the first place, as I gathered and was encouraged and spurred on towards affection for the Lord by the body, I, I noticed there was a change in my own heart. And so, so I don't think, I'm not going to make a hard and fast rule. You have to be at church every single Sunday. But don't underestimate what happens in gathering together week after week after week to gather with the body, to love and to worship and to praise the Lord. Don't underestimate the formative effect that it has on you. It's like if, if you have a child, just that, that daily investment, that daily drip, you might not see it all together or at one moment, but just as the days and the months and the years go by, there is a formative effect that comes from gathering together with the body to worship what God has done for us. So let me pray that the Lord would bless us in these things. Lord, we thank you for who you are and for the grace you've shown us in Jesus. Thank you for your work on the cross in making a way for us so that we can enter into your rest. Would you give us wisdom by your spirit and um, just knowing how to best rest in you. Um, we ask that you would bless us in these things and continue to shape us into the image of Jesus and continue to help us to love him more. Pray this in his name. Amen.